Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. David Fulkerts Landau joins us to say he's chief economist of Deutsche Bank, barely describes his contribution to economics. And I think of Michael Dooley, David Fulkerts Landau and Peter Garber and their important research on intervention of two decades ago. DFL, you and others at Deutsche Bank are talking very seriously about a need to intervene here. The weak euro intervention of another time and place was 85 cents, 90 cents. Now you're talking intervention at 110. Why is that? Well, it's a question of uh, uh, how to control inflation <clears throat> uh, without doing too much damage. And uh, the easiest way and, and, and the most effective way to do that would be uh, for the European Central Bank to uh, raise rates or, uh, or to find some way of uh, talking rates up and indicating that that's what they will do. Uh, you'll recall that... Uh, when they went negative in 2014, the uh, dollar uh, appreciated from somewhere around 136 to 110 in a matter of nine months. Mm -hmm. uh, and so any move now to increase rates and to signal that they will be going positive uh, would precipitate a very, very quick uh, dollar depreciation, which would, of course, be great for inflation within, within Europe, which will be one of the main problems they will have given what's in the pipeline now. Let's go to Rudiger Dornbusch and Ken Rogoff. They would suggest a uh, less coordinated intervention will not be effective. Uh, do you see this as a singular I, EU effort or would it be coordinated? Uh, there is not a chance in the world that we will get a coordinated intervention, even in times like this with a door on Europe's, on Europe's doorstep. Those days are gone. I think uh, not even a, a d direct intervention for the sake of getting moving the exchange rate is something that I think the ECB would do. It's more a question of indicating concern and changing the, the, the tonality around that uh, rather than direct intervention. I think that's just not in the cards right now. So what would they have to say? I mean, is this basically uh, them coming out and saying there are no rate hikes on the horizon, we're going to continue all of our emergency purchases in full for a prolonged period of time, and we have your back? Is that basically the idea? I mean, that would weaken the currency. It wouldn't necessarily strengthen it. So what could they even say? No, I think they would have to go back to the narrative of saying that uh, we will raise rates this year because inflation is our top priority and, and uh, our main objective, and that uh, uh, that will be reflected, hopefully, in their inflation forecast. And we, we have inflation in Europe somewhere around 6.5% for this year, and uh, that number just cannot stand without uh, being being confronted with the policy. They should admit that, uh, they will undoubtedly, and say that we will now... Think, start thinking about their uh, moving this year and rather than pushing it further out. Would and, that, and then... Well, would that be enough, though, David? And, and, and the reason why I ask this is because we've got an increasing number of analysts and economists coming on and saying, we're getting to the point where central banks lack the ability to really influence inflation and even growth, given some of the exogenous shocks. Do you think that that will actually make a difference, a sort of tighter a verbiage, at least, from the ECB at a time when the economy is getting hammered by some of the pressures from the, uh, from the invasion? 
No, there's no doubt. If it went for the exchange rate, that uh, raising rates themselves, it would feed slowly through the economy, of course, to, to impact on demand, impact on credit availability, and things like that. But the exchange rate impact will be dramatic and it will be fast. So that's why I said at the outset that the best tool for them available is to talk up the exchange rate as best as they can. They will do that by giving uh, the market greater certainty and greater conviction that uh, they will raise rates and that they will think in terms of moving towards a positive depot rate uh, this year or certainly very early next year. That certainty is important. And, and uh, I think that you would see an immediately beneficial effect for the exchange rate and immediate feed through through inflation. It would make it much easier for them to macro manage right. the economy. David, ruble to 113, Brent crude to 113 as well. That's just by convenience. And the answer is these are shocks to the system. As they filter through to the balance sheets and to the write-downs to come, is commercial banking in Europe at risk? No, not at all. I think commercial banking in Europe has improved tremendously in terms of quality of balance sheet, quality of earnings. So I don't think that's an issue. Uh, now, clearly, like any other industry, uh, uh, these shocks will affect the banking system. But uh, in terms of uh, a, a serious impairment, I don't think that's an issue. But, but basically, there are two big forces in Europe right now. One of them is, is, is the inflationary impact of uh, uh, oil price, energy price increases, and what that will do to, to aggregate demand, to production, manufacturing, and so and that's clearly a big shock. But on the other hand, you have to remember, there's also a massive positive demand shock coming from the rearmament in Europe, and particularly in Germany. We're talking about 100 billion, uh, not all in one year, obviously, but uh, the amounts of money that are now in play, particularly the early or the, the quick disbursement coming right. out of the, 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 Europe, the European funds, are such that uh, this is a very serious stimulus. So these are the two forces. On the one hand, you have the deflationary force coming from the energy price increase. On the other hand, you have the the stimulative force coming from uh, the fiscal expenditure, which is which is close to as much as the Americans did, not quite, but but it's right. a very very significant impulse. What is the significance of Euro one sixteen? Long ago, far away, and you were directly involved with this. Was the pricing of a euro in a much more peaceful, maybe an ancient time as well? If we see intervention, if we balance off against strong dollar, it's not 1978, it's not the financial crisis as well. Here we are at 111. Is 116 the fair value of euro? No. Uh, ultimately, uh, once the ECB indicates uh, credibly that uh, it'll move positive on a depot rate and that increases, we would expect the euro to go right through 120 into the 130s. So it'll be, a, it'll be a dramatic change just the way it happened in 2014 on the other way around. Uh, and, and that's something we're quite confident about. So there's nothing, there's nothing special about 116. It is, in fact, a lot higher than that. Regardless of what the ECB does, your comments on fiscal spending and, frankly, Germany's pledge to actually meet that 2% or more target for military spending is really notable. Do you think that because of some of these fiscal expenditures, that talks of stagflation in Europe are perhaps overblown? Yes, they are, they are definitely overblown. Uh, I think that when I look at the press and I, I, I listen to what everybody's saying, the uh, the impact of uh, that additional expenditure will be quite dramatic because it will support manufacturing all across era and it'll be spent very widely. And also, and also the, the, the money is coming out of the recovery and resilience fund. 
in quick disbursements there. For instance, Italy is already on the way to spending $6 billion just for income maintenance uh, uh, to, to cope with gas price increases. That is income immediately. And so we will see a big, uh, a big uh, uh, um, impulse, fiscal impulse coming from that. So, yeah, so my sense is I do not expect that the Ukraine era and, the, and the subsequent price increases in oil and gas uh, and, and commodities, agricultural as well, will have more than half a percent impact on uh, the uh, European, on, on growth within the Eurozone, not much more than that. What would have the to happen? What would have to happen, David, for, for you to rethink that, for you to think that perhaps the impact of higher commodity costs will have a greater effect on the prospects of growth? There is a 700-pound gorilla in the room, and that is if Nord Stream 1, the gas pipeline, gets disrupted. In other words, if either the Europeans are no longer able to or want to buy the, buy the gas and oil from Russia or Russia, when, or Russia cuts them off, either way, that will be a very, very significant shock. Uh, Europe, Europe gets 40% of its uh, uh, gas from Russia, uh, Germany more. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that gets cut off, then you will have to see some form of prioritization. Households come first, industry comes last, and uh, you will have a very serious recession in that case. So that, I think, is something that you can sort of see it playing into the market now. Some people, and, and, and what might drive this is, surprisingly enough, is uh, uh, social media. This is the first war, major war, that we see uh, all around the world in social media. The Russians attack Kiev, which they will shortly, and other cities. Everything that goes on, you will find uh, uh, per video uh, uh, around the world. That will create enormous pressure to stop buying oil and gas from Russia. And and, uh, if that gets cut off, then I think we will see a much more significant impact in Europe than we've seen so far. David, thank you, sir. As always, David Foucault-Landau there of Deutsche Bank. Some really important points on Europe and the risks, the tail risk around the story of the moment. Lawrence Summers joins us. He is at Harvard University and, of course, the former Secretary of Treasury of the United States. Professor Summers, thank you so much for joining this morning. I want to go back to McChesney Martin and Truman. I want to go back to McChesney Martin and Johnson in war. What should a chairman of the Federal Reserve System do in a time of crisis in war? Stay on plan or amend to the politicians? Let me just first say that I was very proud of our president last night. I thought the way in which he spoke to the stakes of what we're involved in uh, in Ukraine, what we're involved in and what the obligation of the United States is to uphold world order at a moment like this was profoundly important and profoundly uh, inspiring. We're going to talk about economic and uh, financial stuff in just a minute, uh, Tom, and I'm happy to do that. But the real stakes are in freedom, in the maintenance of civilization, in the resistance uh, to naked aggression. And history is going to remember that a lot longer than it's going to remember anything uh, with the Fed funds rate. Larry, I think a lot of people would agree with you. Oh, I'm sorry. So sorry. But to follow on to really get to the Fed funds rate, you know, what is the cost the U.S. is willing to bear when you talk about exactly preserving those freedoms and then the Fed's role in trying to tamp down? Have they already missed the boat on that? 
I think the Fed's been very late. I think it's been way behind the curve. And I think one of the reasons why it's costly when you're behind the curve is that sometimes you can get shocks that make it harder for you to act. But I don't think the Fed has any alternative now but to mount a strong response to uh, inflation at a time when I think we are at or over the brink of a spiral of rising inflation uh, breaking out. You're seeing that in the numbers for uh, expected inflation over the next year or over the next couple of years. The place you're seeing it most clearly is in the wage data and the data on vacancies, which are pointing to wage inflation at close to 6% and pressures for that uh, to uh, accelerate. And I think that needs to be ringing all the alarm bells uh, at uh, the Fed. Yeah. So I think there's much more risk of the Fed doing too little than there is of the Fed doing uh, too much at a moment uh, like this. I think the Fed's obsession with a high pressure uh, economy was uh, way excessive because they didn't think about how pressured an economy we were gonna be able to have over the longer term. And I think the next recession probably has mistaken monetary policy written all over it. Larry, there was a discussion about this before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, that perhaps the Fed was way too late and had to move very quickly. Now the suggestion coming from markets is that even if the Fed moves quickly, it's not going to matter in terms of staving off a near-term recession. It's not going to matter in terms of landing this economy in a more controlled way. Do you agree with that sentiment? I think the difficulty of getting a soft landing where we both brought inflation down and we brought and we avoided recession was always very difficult. And I think with $110 oil, it is uh, that much uh, more difficult. And so I think we're going to have to, if we want to bring down inflation uh, and we don't have a financial accident, we're going to need to see interest rates higher than the Fed or markets are right. now price are now pricing in. Uh, Larry David Folkerts Landau, of course, of the academics of Dooley, Folkerts Landau and Garber, and at Deutsche Bank now, is suggesting the EU will need intervention to see strong dollar become a weaker dollar. He's worried about too weak of a euro as well. He made very clear that this time around it is a less than coordinated intervention. Can a singular intervention work at any time and place? I don't think the track record on currency interventions is very uh, encouraging. I don't, I don't envision that you're likely to see a currency intervention by the United States to weaken uh, the dollar, nor is that something that I would uh, advocate uh, very much uh, the contrary. I, I suspect uh, that Europe's gonna, that the more relevant tool is uh, the use of monetary policy rather than currency intervention. Professor Summers, thank you so much. The former Secretary of Treasury of the United States, Lawrence Summers, always from Harvard. 
It's Alberto Gallo, and John, what a joy to have Alberto Gallo in the studios with us, a real symbol of the end of the pandemic. A gentleman of Europe, his public service to Italy and the Navy, and a guy who knows it's price up and yield down. John? Our friend Alberto back. I didn't even know he was here in New York until I saw him in the commercial break. Alberto, good to see you. Let's just start with the massive dislocation we've seen in this European credit market recently. The extent of destruction you've seen in the market, Alberto, and, and where you've been taking opportunities, where you've been taking some purchases in. This is a bear market. It's a high vol environment. We want to be preserving capital and we want to be in companies that have government support or shareholder support. Now, the good thing is there are regions of the world which are in a defense mode in towards state capitalism. Europe has supported companies during COVID and will continue to do so during the next months. So, you know, there are names that in the, in the travel sector, in the industrial sector that go down, but then they have sovereign support. And those are big opportunities and they yield a lot more than inflation. You know, think about also the banks. So we are buying in these sectors. Uh, we were very cautious at the beginning of the year and we're buying slowly. The weak spot continues to be emerging markets. And when people th- see the Fed you know, doing less, I think that's wrong. The Fed will continue to tackle inflation that will continue to hurt emerging markets together with political and geopolitical risk. Alberto, just to pick up on what you were talking about and where you're buying, do you do that throughout the whole of Europe? Is there a bias towards a particular part of Europe? How do you think about that? We are doing it across. Uh, However, there are countries in the world that are more vulnerable to high commodity prices and high energy. So, you know, Southern Europe is more vulnerable, but Outside of uh, the Western European countries, you know, you've got Turkey, you've got Egypt. There's a lot of countries that are more vulnerable. And um, in emerging markets, you could say that there's still a minefield. There's still a lot of um, a lot of countries that are going to be affected by the combination of high energy prices and higher uh, interest rates in the U.S. and a stronger dollar. So we're very, very cautious there. And we, we are using limited Uh, dry powder at this stage, we expect a little bit more volatility later in the year. Alberto, you were saying that the Fed is still going to hike rates as much as perhaps people had previously thought because inflation is still very much an issue. Is it the same story for the ECB? ECB is likely to step back, uh, perhaps only do one hike this year. They clearly have a closer issue, but also inflation in Europe is a lot more driven by energy. So half of the, you know, 5% inflation in Europe comes from energy in the U.S., you know, it's around one third of the seven and a half percent CPI year on year that comes from energy, um, at least so far. So European inflation can still be, you know, deemed um, more transitory. But in the U.S., you know, there's rents, there is uh, services and wages. So, so it's a kind of a different problem here. Does that make you in general more bullish, uh, ironically, on European corporate debt and European rates uh, simply because you have that ECB benchmark at a time when the Fed is going in the opposite direction? That's exactly right. We're in, a, in the context of a bear market for bonds. The place to hide the, the least bad place to hide is still Europe. And within that, in the credit market, you can still find companies and sectors that have sovereign support. So you get a less hawkish ECB, and then you get some sovereign support, for example, to French companies or to UK companies. So there are some places to hide uh, in Europe. Where you are, where you want to be cautious the most is, is still in EM, in my opinion, because you have compounded effect of higher commodity prices, which is bad for some EM countries, and then you have a stronger dollar and, and higher Fed rates. Alberto, you mentioned the Federal Reserve. You think they still hike? 
Most people assume that's the case. Whether there are doubts about how far they can actually push it. The ECB, is it even part of the conversation for 22 anymore as far as you're concerned? It's possible to do one hike in, in 2022. It really depends on how long this lasts. Uh, European countries have around five months of gas supply, of gas reserves. So, uh, you know, if, it's, uh, if the conflict uh, in Russia, Ukraine is, is a matter of weeks, then, you know, we could still see, you know, positive growth and more fiscal spending. Think about Germany upping the defense spending. So it, it will become a reflationary environment, which is positive, and the ECB will have to hike. If it lasts months in, instead of weeks, if the, if the war is not over by the summer, then we're really looking at, um, you know, much lower growth in Europe. Then we've got a big problem. Gas right now up by more than 30% in Europe. Alberto, it's great to see you. Good to catch up, buddy. Hopefully next time under different circumstances to have a more broader conversation about this market. We have done everything we can to bring you informed guess on these many topics of war and an informed guess on oil, on supply, demand, and indeed on international trade is Amrita Sen, founder of Energy Aspects, out with a spectacular note on the realities of what we're reporting. Amrita Sen, I learned a long, long time ago to have immense respect for the trust of the system, and that trust is the basic idea of letters of credit. Tell me how letters of credit are going to work now, next week, into April, or to the point of backwardation that John Farrow just talked about. Yeah, it's the best question I've been asked. I'll tell you that much, Tom. Uh, because, you know, the problem is exactly like you said, there is no letters of credit right now. No, nobody is willing to issue refiners, any buyers with letters of credit because of the banking uncertainty. Now, what does it look like in a week's time? It's hard for me to say. However, I will say this, the U.S. in particular, but even some European countries are fearing Oil prices, gas prices being so high is going to hurt the economy, so they want to carve out exemptions. They need to be very specific and clear about these exemptions. Once those exemptions are announced, then letters of credit can resume again with those certain banks, and you can see some trade start up. But right now, it's complete paralysis. Amrita, in the meantime, OPEC Plus agreeing to raise oil output by drumroll 400,000 barrels a day in April, according to a delegate. I mean, that's nothing, Amrita. Have a blast on Bloomberg Opinion saying the situation calls for emergency measures. What are those emergency measures? Yes, the 400,000, we all know that in reality is going to be half of that because most of these countries don't have the spare capacity. Well, emergency measures, we saw the IEA releasing 60 million barrels of SPR yesterday night and prices rallied by $6 on the back of that news just tells you, I've been talking to traders and they're like, well, if you really wanted to make a difference, you needed 200 million barrels. So that's not happening because we don't have that much oil. What's the pricing mechanism here, Amrita? You've got some people saying this is a completely tight market where people can't get physically, physical delivery, and other people saying there are some oil companies that are taking advantage of this and kicking up pricing. Which is it? It's the former. I mean, look, yes, it's not that the oil isn't there. The Russian oil is there. But if you don't want to touch it, then you don't have that oil. I think it's very important to understand, particularly for Europe, this is very short-haul barrels. Now, if Europe needs to go and get something to substitute for Russian oil, say, let's say they get U.S. oil or West African oil, the sailing time is a lot longer. 
So they will be left with the period of no oil coming to Europe. And that's why you're going to get refinery suffering. That's why the ultimate solver mechanism is high prices. Demand has to come down. Well, but Amrita, the reason why I ask is because people have been arguing for, for example, the U.S. to support the shale industry, to support the local, the domestic energy industry. And other people have come out and pointed out, you know what, they could actually increase production dramatically. They're just not doing it yet on their own volition. What's your view on that? Again, I mean, it's a tricky one because, yes, they are not doing it because shareholders are making them return money, right, to them because they've been loss-making for a decade. Yes, absolutely right. But they are also uh, getting or they're trying to send a signal to the Biden administration because the Biden administration ultimately wants to transition to a green energy. And a lot of the measures, more medium-term measures uh, that they are taking, doesn't encourage a lot of drilling in the U.S. And that's the conversation they want to have, saying, okay, if we're going to drill right now, get more oil out, but we also want that certainty that we can continue doing that in the medium term. Amrita, what you just said is so, so important just moments ago. Essentially, what you said is 2020, spring 2020 in reverse. And I remember when Jeff Curry of Goldman came on with Tom and I on radio, and he said, basically, we need to breach storage capacity and once we've done that, you could see negative prices. And everyone was like, wow, negative, yes. that's ridiculous. And then we had negative prices. That's what's happened. You need to reverse engineer that for me and help me understand, Amrita. If it's spring 2020 in reverse, how high do crude prices need to go to destroy demand? How much more higher from here can they go? That's exactly it. This is COVID in reverse, 100% accurate. We have never tested this. We went to 147, 148 in 2008. That's not what killed the market. It was a credit crisis. We can easily breach 150. We have genuinely never tested what price do we need to be if the economy is still okay to really curtail global growth. We could be really talking about numbers. We've, you know, 170, 180. You could literally be picking a number right now. John, can we go nerd here? I think we're trying right now. Okay, Amrita Sen, is oil a Giffen good? A big chunk of it is. Yes, we, we've never tested it. Yes, you know? we've never tested it. Yeah. And, and it's inelastic, right? You're coming out of COVID. You still want to travel. John, you like that? I or did like that. I mean, the, the number there, like, 170, 180, what? is what we could be testing here. Oh, no. Amrita, we need to continue this conversation. Come back yeah. soon. Thank you, and Amrita. Let's carry it on. Amrita Sen of Energy Aspects. Our politics and particularly the path forward for very much his Democratic Party. Howard Dean is with us. He is a former presidential candidate. Dr. Dean is chair of the Democratic National Committee and has skied every black diamond in Killington, Vermont. We welcome him uh, this morning. Great introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I want to go away from the normal political talk, Howard, and I want to ask you a difficult question. You and I grew up with John Stennis. We grew up with Democratic Southern senators. We're in a war. We have a wartime president. How does the Democratic Party get the military back? Uh, I'm not worried. I don't think we, I think we have the military back. I think the vast majority of military people do not believe we should live in a fascist society. And I think the leadership of the military is doing a great job. I think both thought they did a great job resisting Trump's craziness. So I'm not the least bit worried about the military. I'm worried about the people who are driving around in trucks and clogging up the works and talking about neo-Nazi ideology on the floor of Congress. 
how does the Democratic Party and particularly newer candidates coming on in the quarters, maybe in the coming years, how do they fight off these autocratic tendencies? How do the Democrats coalesce around a middle message? Well, that's the key question. Um, look, I, I, I think they re-message. I, I, don't, I, I thought Biden, uh, whatever you have, happen to think about this particular issue, I thought one of the great lines in Biden's speech last night was, we don't want to defund the police. We want to fund the police. And what he means by that is we do need police reform. Absolutely. But Eric Adams is mayor today in New York City because he because most of the people in the community that voted for him most enthusiastically, uh, which is particularly black immigrants, uh, do not want to defund the police. So I, I think Biden hit all the high notes yesterday. As I was, we were joking around before the program, I think people have low expectations. I thought it was one of the best State of the Union's addresses that I've seen in the last 20 years. Howard, He's he hit all the... Bored. Go ahead. Excuse me. Ahead. I, I apologize for interrupting. I, you, know, you were saying he hit all the high points, and, and he did, of the Democratic uh, Party and what he wants to sort of push forward in his agenda. But right now, there is one conversation that is dominating American families, and it is inflation. It is what they right. spend when they go to the store. It is only exacerbated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine with gas prices. And yet the message has been, you know, keep going with some of these plans, and eventually it'll work its way out. Do you think that the Democratic Party needs to go further with respect to supporting uh, national domestic oil producers and refiners to try to give them more support to increase the domestic production to isolate Russia? No, the problem is not domestic production. We actually, as you well know, in this country, produce more oil than we use. The problem is it, get, it gets sent all over in the world market. We're probably going to have to figure out a way to keep that here. Look, We've been practicing modern monetary theory, whether you like it or not, for the last 15 years. The Republicans, uh, who probably don't know what monetary mon um, modern monetary theory is, have been practicing it big time. Run the deficit up as high as you possibly like. Well, when you do that, and what monetary modern, uh, modern monetary theory says is that inflation is the problem, and that is what we're hitting now. We're going to have to raise interest rates, and there's no nice way to say this. Um, but the, the, the oil market... It, it, you know, this is all short term stuff. Uh, and I think trying to tackle the oil market and bring oil prices down by doing anything other than reducing or uh, removing oil from the um, from the reserves and put the, putting that in the market is is silly. Well, but We're not going to drill our way out of this. And, and that's that seems to be uh, one line that the party seems to be taking. You have other members of the Democratic Party, including Joe Manchin uh, of West Virginia, coming out and saying, actually, this was the way that we need to go. I'm just wondering if there are other concrete steps to take so that some of these shocks, because the price increase that we've seen in oil has been a shock. The price increase that we've seen in wheat is increasingly becoming a shock. These are major uh, issues for the global economy, at yeah, what point do you have to say we have to take an immediate reaction to this? We are taking an immediate reaction. Look, there is a war going on, and the war is being conducted by one of the biggest oil powers in the world against one of the biggest grain producers in the world. What do you expect? The solution to this is the deal with Putin, and I think Biden's doing a great job doing that. Governor Dean, the junior senator from Vermont is 80. He will enjoy his 81st birthday here in September. The Democrats are about to lose this, that, and something else in Washington. I'll let you and the experts decide what it is. How far has Senator Sanders and the liberals overreached? 
Um, look, I think the biggest problem with the so-called left uh, is not that they're wrong. It's that they can't get their messaging straight. And one of the interesting things is this debate over Medicare for all. Um, we should have Medicare for all, but we should have Medicare for all who want it. You, this is the most libertarian country in the face of the earth. And, and that includes left, right or center. People don't like to be told what to do. They like to be given their own choices. So we often do the right thing. We need a system of universal health care that works as our health care system is absolutely broken in terms of its in terms of the way that we spend money and, the, and who has to pay for that and suffer as a result. But the fact is, you cannot message a package that alienates a significant portion of American people. And that's our problem. Our problem is not what we don't know what to do. Our problem is we insist, or at least on, on the left side, uh, which I count myself on on many issues, uh, we insist on messaging it in such a way that we hit people over the head with it. And that conveys the message that we're smarter than you are. And that's one of the reasons that, that people like Trump, who are completely unqualified to be anything, uh, managed to win, because we alienate people we can't alienate. Uh, we can't alienate ordinary Americans. We have to stop doing that. Well, Howard Dean, don't you need a refresh of the senators then? Because there's a lot of senators that speak that way. Wouldn't you agree? I'm for, I'm for term limits. I'm for term limits in the United States Senate. I think it's worked well in the presidency. And I think we ought to limit terms to at maximum three terms, six year terms in the Senate. We ought to limit terms in the House. Look, the political institutions in a democracy are always far behind where the public is. That's the nature of democracy is that the public runs the place. But there's no organized way for them to do that other than through the political process. When you have a party that doesn't give a damn what happens to the country as long as they are in power and is willing to cheat on the voting uh, and, and, and refuse to confirm the president's most basic appointments. That is a democracy that doesn't work. And the way to do that is to limit people's terms so there's no more incentive to do all this gerrymandering and all this crazy stuff so that the democracy works again. And that's and I, I've, I've thrown up my hands. I think we need term limits in the worst way, including term limits on the Supreme Court, which is now nothing but a bunch of partisan hacks as three of them themselves admitted. Howard, would you have said that if there was a majority for people with more of your views? I would have said that if you get a Senate that's completely out of touch with where the rest of America is. And when you're having people who are 90 years old running for re-election in, in Iowa, which is just ridiculous. We had an 80-year-old Speaker of the House last night, didn't we? Yes, we did. And I, I, I stick to my guns. Terminals are good for everybody, both Democrats and Republicans, and we need them. Howard Dean, thank you, sir. Good to catch up. Thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.